Section 86 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. The Agony in the Garden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here, while I go, and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little farther, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could he not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time, and prayed, saying, O Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them, and went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he cometh to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. The verses we have now read describe what is commonly called Christ's agony at Gethsemane. It is a passage which undoubtedly contains deep and mysterious things. We ought to read it with reverence and wonder, for there is much in it which we cannot fully comprehend. Why do we find our Lord so sorrowful and very heavy, as here is described? What are we to make of his words, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death? Why do we see him going apart from his disciples, and falling on his face, and crying to his father with strong cries, and thrice-repeated prayer? Why is the Almighty Son of God, who had worked so many miracles, so heavy and disquieted? Why is Jesus, who came into the world to die, so like one ready to faint at the approach of death? Why is all this? There is but one reasonable answer to these questions. The weight that pressed down our Lord's soul was not the fear of death and its pains. Thousands have endured the most agonizing sufferings of body, and died without a groan, and so, no doubt, might our Lord. But the real weight that bowed down the heart of Jesus was the weight of the sin of the world, which seems to have now pressed down upon him with peculiar force. It was the burden of our guilt imputed to him, which was now laid on him as the head of the scapegoat. How great that burden must have been, no heart of man can conceive. It is known only to God. Well may the Greek litany speak of the unknown sufferings of Christ. The words of Scott on the subject are probably correct, Christ at this time endured as much misery, of the same kind with that of condemned spirits, as could possibly consist with a pure conscience, 
perfect love of God and man, and an assured confidence of a glorious event. Footnote. I believe that the view maintained in this exposition is the only reasonable solution that can be given for our Lord's agony. How any Socinian or any divine who denies the imputation of man's sin to Christ and the vicarious nature of Christ's sufferings can account satisfactorily for the agony, I am totally at a loss to conceive. Upon the principles of the Socinian, who utterly denies the doctrine of atonement and says that our Lord was only a man and not God, he was one who showed less firmness in suffering than many men have shown. Upon the principle of some modern divines, who say that our Lord's death was not a propitiation and expiation for sin, but only a great example of self-sacrifice, the intense agony of body and mind here described is equally unaccountable. Both views appear to me alike dishonoring to our Lord Jesus Christ, and utterly unscriptural and unsatisfactory. I believe the agony in the garden to be a knot that nothing can untie, but the old doctrine of our sin being really imputed to Christ, and Christ being made sin and a curse for us. There are deep things in this passage of Scripture, containing the account of the agony, which I purposefully leave untouched. They are too deep for man's line to fathom. The extent to which Satan was allowed to tempt our Lord in this hour, the degree of suffering, both mental and bodily, which an entirely sinless person, like our Lord, would endure in bearing the sin of all mankind, the manner in which the human and divine wills both operated in our Lord's experience, since he was at all times as really man as God. All these things are points which I prefer to leave alone. It is easy on such questions to darken counsel by words without knowledge. End of footnote. But however mysterious this part of our Lord's history may seem to us, we must not fail to observe the precious lessons of practical instruction which it contains. Let us now see what these lessons are. Let us learn, in the first place, that prayer is the best practical remedy that we can use in times of trouble. We see that Christ himself prayed when his soul was sorrowful. All true Christians ought to do the same. Trouble is a cup that all must drink in this world of sin. We are born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job chapter 5 verse 7. We cannot avoid it. Of all creatures, none is so vulnerable as man. Our bodies, our minds, our families, our business, our friends, all are so many doors through which trial will come in. The holiest saints can claim no exemption from it. Like their master, they are often men of sorrow. But what is the first thing to be done in time of trouble? We must pray. Like Job, we must fall down and worship. Job chapter 1 verse 20. Like Hezekiah, we must spread our matters before the Lord. Second Kings chapter 19 verse 14. The first person we must turn to for help must be our God. We must tell our Father in heaven all our sorrow. We must believe confidently that nothing is too trivial or minute to be laid before him, so long as we do it with entire submission to his will. It is the mark of faith to keep nothing back from our best friend. So doing, we may be sure we shall have an answer. If it be possible, and the thing we ask is for God's glory, it shall be done. The thorn in the flesh shall either be removed 
or grace to endure it will be given to us, as it was to St. Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. May we all store up this lesson against the day of need. It is a true saying that prayers are the leeches of care. Let us learn in the second case that entire submission of the will to the will of God should be one of our chief aims in this world. The words of our Lord are a beautiful example of the spirit that we should follow after in this matter. He says, Not as I will, but as thou wilt. He says again, Thy will be done. A will unsanctified and uncontrolled is one great cause of unhappiness in life. It may be seen in little infants. It is born with us. We all like our own way. We wish and want many things, and forget that we are entirely ignorant what is for our good, and unfit to choose for ourselves. Happy is he who has learned to have no wishes, and in every state to be content. It is a lesson which we are slow to learn, and like St. Paul, we must learn it not in the school of mortal man, but of Christ. Philippians chapter 4 verse 11 Would we know whether we are born again and growing in grace? Let us see how it is with us in the matter of our wills. Can we bear disappointment? Can we put up patiently with unexpected trials and vexations? Can we see our pet plans and darling schemes crossed without murmuring and complaint? Can we sit still and suffer calmly, as well as go up and down and work actively? These are the things that prove whether we have the mind of Christ. It ought never to be forgotten that warm feelings and joyful frames are not the truest evidences of grace. A mortified will is a far more valuable possession. Even our Lord himself did not always rejoice, but he could always say, Thy will be done. Let us learn, in the last place, that there is great weakness, even in true disciples of Christ, and that they have need to watch and pray against it. We see Peter, James, and John, those three chosen apostles, sleeping when they ought to have been watching and praying, and we find our Lord addressing them in these solemn words, Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. There is a double nature in all believers. Converted, renewed, sanctified as they are, they still carry about with them a mass of indwelling corruption, a body of sin. St. Paul speaks of this when he says, I find a law that, when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. Romans chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. The experience of all true Christians in every age confirms this. They find within two contrary principles, and a continual strife between the two. To these two principles our Lord alludes when he addresses his half-awakened disciples. He calls the one flesh and the other spirit. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But does our Lord excuse the weakness of his disciples? Be it far from us to think so. Those who draw this conclusion mistake his meaning. He uses that very weakness as an argument for watchfulness and prayer. He teaches us that the very fact that we are encompassed with infirmity should stir us up continually to watch and pray. 
If we know anything of true religion, let us never forget this lesson. If we desire to walk with God comfortably, and not fall like David or Peter, let us never forget to watch and pray. Let us live like men on enemies' ground, and always be on our guard. We cannot walk too carefully. We cannot be too jealous over our souls. The world is very ensnaring. The devil is very busy. Let our Lord's words ring in our ears daily like a trumpet. Our spirits may sometimes be very willing, but our flesh is always very weak. Then let us always watch and always pray. End of section 86